So from time to time, Dawn and I have a little practice around our house that I'm betting a number of you have at your house as well, where we will walk through our home and begin identifying things that continue to be useful for us in our home and identifying things that we're no longer using. After 36 years of being married, we've accumulated some stuff. There's our stuff, there's our kids' stuff, and now that we have two grandchildren, we need truckload after truckload after truckload to carry in all of the other stuff. So, from time to time, we walk through our house and identify things that we're ready to let go of in order to make room for the things that we really want and need. In a very similar way, there is a practice in Christian spiritual formation through the decades and the centuries of walking through our lives and recognizing those things in our lives that we need to let go of in order to make space for what really matters. Throughout the centuries, Christian leaders in prayer and worship and, and the living of the Christian life have emphasized the importance of learning how to let go of certain things. So this morning, and for six weeks total, I'm going to be doing a series of messages called Letting Go. I'm going to ask you to walk with me through this process of identifying places and things in our lives that in order to make space for what's really important, we're going to need to learn to let go. This is an ancient Christian practice, and I'm going to ask you to walk with me on this journey starting this morning. Now, one thing is for sure. There's a lot of interest in our society in letting go these days. Have you noticed this? Whether you're on the therapist's couch or somewhere in Beverly Hills, whether you're uh, listening to the language of popular music or gathering in a Christian sanctuary, it seems that somebody somewhere has something to say about letting go. This week, I did some extensive research into are what people have been saying about letting go. And by extensive research, I mean I spent five minutes doing a Google search. <laughs> and I came across dozens and dozens and dozens of quotes about letting go. Here's just a couple of them. Some people believe that holding on and hanging in there are signs of great strength. However, there are times when it takes much more strength to know when to let go and then do it. That is from the wisdom of Ann Landers, if any of you are curious. Accept yourself, love yourself, and keep moving forward. If you want to fly, you have to give up, that is, let go of what weighs you down. That's from Roy Bennett. Or how about this little piece of sacred music that some of you may be familiar with? Let it go, let it go. I'm one with the wind in the sky, and in case you don't know, that is Queen Elsa from Disney's Frozen, which if you have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, you also have listened to 27,000 times. There's a lot of interest these days in letting go, and for good reason. We've taken up a lot of stuff into our lives that's harming us. We have taken up a whole lot of stuff intended originally to be helpful and good that is becoming weight-bearing and that has become restrictive of our freedom. In broad ways as a society and in more direct and personal ways as individuals, we've taken on all kinds of stuff that's weighing us down. 
There was this little internet, this, I'm sorry, this little uh, invention that came along and became uh, popular in everybody's homes somewhere around the year 2000 or a little earlier than that called the internet. Any of you ever heard of that? What a gift. The extraordinary gifts of information that come to us through the internet are simply remarkable. But think with me for a moment, from friends, about the ways that technology has become part of what is weighing us down and holding us back. We now spend hours and hours daily as Americans scrolling across our phones, moving from one thing to another. And did you know that the great big technology giants have all learned little psychological tricks to keep pulling us in further and further and further? And let me tell you something that you already know. It's not making us happier. In fact... Did you know that counselors and psychologists are telling us now that there's a correlation between the amount of time that we spend on our smartphones and on screens in general and depression and anxiety? Here's something that has taken hold of our whole society, and it has become a burden that we need to find appropriate ways to let go. But think about your own experience for just a moment. Think about ways that you have taken up things that might be so small in the very beginning. Anybody ever taken up a grudge that in the first moments feels so good to harbor a grudge against someone because of something they've done, but take that on week after week and month after month and year after year, and that grudge becomes an enormous burden that becomes difficult and challenging to let go of. There's a reason why the language of letting go is so popular these days, and the reason is We've become burdened by a lot. And now, I need to issue a warning. This is not easy. Letting go of the things that have become part of our lives that are, that are robbing our freedom is going to be really, really, really hard. I'd love to tell you that in a six-week series of messages, we're going to master all of it, but it's harder than that. I don't know if any of you remember the cartoonist Gary Larson, who was popular a number of years ago. One of my favorite Gary Larson cartoons was one in which a, a person is driving along in the car, and in the side view mirror, you can see an enormous monster filling the entire side view mirror. And then you can see the letters that used to be regularly imprinted on side view mirrors beneath this enormous monster that he could see in the side view mirror, and the letters said, Objects in the mirror are larger than they appear. There ought to be a warning that comes with a con any conversation about letting go. Warning. This will be harder than it looks. So, here we are asking the question, does our faith as Christians give us any help in this business of letting go of the things that have burdened us and are beginning to pull us down? Is there anything in the great Christian story or anything in the history of Christian practice that can help us with this practice of letting go? Thankfully, the answer is yes, but it's a difficult start because where we need to begin, at least where we need to begin, is with an old, hard word in the Christian vocabulary that is probably not anybody's favorite to jump into on the first Sunday of January. An old, hard world, world in our vocabulary, which is, are you ready? Sin. 
It's unfortunate that in um, much of Christian parlance, this has become a word that we're afraid of. And it's even more important, it's more unfortunate in my view, that this is a view that has become so terribly, terribly misunderstood. For many of us, to speak about sin is to imagine a list of wrongdoings and the things that will happen to you if you do any of them. Think of the word sin and suddenly you're thinking of sins and a long list of things that you might be guilty of. But did you know that there's a much bigger and a much broader understanding of the word sin that is used in Scripture and particularly in the New Testament, where it is not talking about lists of wrongdoing, but rather a power, a power that is at work in the world and a power that is at work in our lives that holds us back and holds us down. This is what is behind the passage that Sandy read just a moment ago from Paul's letter to the Romans from the seventh chapter. Remember these words that he wrote. He said, for what I, what I do is not the good that I want to. No, the evil that I want to do, this is what I keep on doing. And if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that is living in me that does it. Here's a word that speaks not so much an affirmation about how to let go, but a word of diagnosis, a diagnosis of our problem. And the diagnosis is we are under the power of sin that holds us back. But did you know that in Christian history and Christian practice, there's another word that is developed that you may be a little bit less familiar with, a word that comes out of uh, communities of prayer and a, a word that comes out of monasteries and mo monastic movements. There's another word that helps to help us to understand the nature of the problem of sin. This other word that has emerged is the word attachments. Ooh, this is helpful. An attachment is what happens when you have a desire for something that is good. When you are longing for comfort, or you have a desire for security, or you have a desire for happiness, or you have a desire to feel better. An attachment is what happens when your desire becomes attached to something that gives temporary help to you, but then you become so attached to it that you find it difficult to let it go. I have been told that Years ago, the way they went about trying to, uh, trying to capture monkeys in the wild was they would take a coconut and they would, they would empty the coconut shell out and they would put a hole in the side of the coconut and they would fill the coconut with rice and then they would attach it to a tree. And the hole that was in the side of the coconut was just large enough that a monkey could come along and put his hand or her hand through the hole, grab a hold of the rice, but the, the hole was small enough that now that the hand had been pulled into a, to a fist and was larger, they couldn't pull it out. This was all they had to do to capture the monkeys because once they reached in and grabbed a hold of the rice that they wanted, they wouldn't ever let go. This is the picture of an attachment. An attachment is something that happens when you have a desire, a good thing. It is good to desire. To desire is to be human. An attachment is what takes place when you have a desire that you find grants you some relief for a season or gift for a season, but then you simply can't let go. Attachments can be things. Attachments can be substances. Attachments can be sick relationships. 
Attachments can be professional. Attachments can be, can be possessions. They go on and on and on and on and on. And here is a powerful little image of a thing that holds us back, this thing called attachments. I want to tell you about an attachment that was mine and is mine and remains part of my, my life and part of my story, and it has to do with what I do as a pastor. Many, many years ago, I went to a conference. I went to a, a conference to observe uh, some practices that would be helpful to pastors in their churches that would help their churches to grow. And there was a desire that I had to do my work faithfully and to do my work well. And so I listened very carefully to everything that I was taught. And I told myself, if I do the things that I'm taught to do, it will help my church to grow. Now, I want you to notice what happened. It was a good thing that attracted me, my desire to do my work well. And I reached in through that coconut shell and I grabbed a hold of everything that I heard and I said, I'm going to do everything it takes to do that. Here's what I didn't know. What I didn't know was that I had become attached to a group of ideas that I believed that if I could do them would make me happy. And my attachment not only did not make me happy, it simply robbed me of the freedom of the enjoyment of pastoral work. And friends, this was my story for years. Attached to certain ideas of what it would be to be successful. Attached in such a way that I couldn't be free to genuinely enjoy the work of pastoral ministry. So, do we have any help that comes to us from Scripture and from Christian practice? Well, yes. It begins with the help of diagnosis. It is the problem of sin. It is the problem of attachment. So what do we do? Well, we try harder, right? When we discover that we have an attachment that is robbing us of our freedom, what we do is we try harder. If it hasn't worked to push on the gas a little bit, we will push on the gas harder and harder and harder. We will give it absolutely everything we have. We will work with every absolute morsel in our energy in order to let go of those things that have become a burden to us. But friends, can I just say what you already know? January is full of resolutions, and February through December are full of failures. Being willful, trying harder, is not going to get the job done. So what do we do? Now, you remember a few moments ago when I told you that we weren't going to solve everything in six Sundays. We're also not going to solve everything today. But I want to offer a hint of a suggestion of where we're going to be going in the weeks to come. There is another word in our theological vocabulary that is crucial for Christians to grasp if we're going to understand what it is to let go of that which holds us back. You know the word. It is a powerful, powerful word, and in a sense, it is going to be the theme of everything that we're going to do in these coming Sundays. The word that we need to reacquaint ourselves with is grace. I want to tell you something that I think is simply extraordinary that has taken place in Scripture. I think that there is an absolute surprise that takes place in the pages of the New Testament. I think there's a twist that takes place in the pages of the New Testament of Scripture that left early Christians breathless and will us as well when we begin to truly and fully grasp this thing. 
I think there's something that happened because of the life and the death of resurrection of Jesus that left the early Christian community simply speechless. I don't mean to suggest to you in saying this that the word grace was not important in the Old Testament. I don't want to suggest for a moment that the beginning of the revelation of the grace of God took place with the mission of Jesus and in the pages of the New Testament. Listen very carefully. You will hear the psalmist saying things like, Gracious and merciful is the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. It is all over the pages of the Old Testament. But in the life and the ministry of Jesus, it is as though the grace of God goes from being on stage to being at the very center of the stage. I am convinced that people were simply shocked by the nature of the grace of God that Jesus Christ made known. Think of it, friends. Think of him gathering together groups of people, and as people would stand back and observe those whom he had gathered, they would stand back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus isn't having dinner with the board of elders and and with the deacons and with the pastoral prayer group. Jesus is having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. And I think people observed this in the ministry of Jesus, and they were simply astonished by what they saw. Think about that day when there was that woman who had been accused of of adultery. She'd been caught in the very act of adultery. And those who were present, they wanted to do that which the law allowed them to do. They wanted to have her put to death by stoning because that's what the law required. And think of Jesus simply speaking over this group of men who were holding her accountable. Jesus speaking to them and saying, How about whichever one of you is without sin to be the first to throw the stone? Or think about Peter, Simon Peter. Remember that Simon Peter was the one who who disavowed Jesus three different times. And in the Gospel of John, did you know that three different times Jesus addresses him after the resurrection and says, Simon, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? And finally Jesus says, Simon, I know that you love me. Feed my sheep. You see, there was, a, there was a turn in people's understanding of who God is that was simply shocking in the ministry of Jesus. And that turn was the revelation of the grace of God. And friends, the grace of God is that God is always for us. God is for us before we have thought of God. God is for us before we have raised a finger in response to God. God is for us before we have done a thing in the world to earn God's help. And God is for us because God is love. This is what Jesus Christ has made known. Many of us have developed a theology of grace that is way too small. We imagine that grace has to do with forgiveness. But grace means that God is for us and the power of God is for us. And the power of God is with us all the time. And what is missing is not that God is for us. What is missing is that we have not recognized that the power of God is the power that restores we who have been insane, that restores us to sanity. God is for us. What I'm going to be saying in these six weeks is not that you and I need to be trying harder and harder and harder to let go of what holds us back. That's willfulness. What I'm going to be suggesting in the weeks to come 
is that we don't need to be willful, but we need to be willing to yield ourselves to a power that is greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. This begins even today, even now, as we in the various places where we are seated, we whisper our simple yes. Oh God, I am willing to go where your spirit leads me and takes me. I can't do it on my own. I am willing and I offer you my yes. There's a reason why our culture is profoundly interested in letting go these days. The reason is, we're all aware that we're carrying a whole bunch that is holding us back and is making us slaves. We have good news as Christian people. The good news is that there is a diagnosis and there is a prognosis for our care and for our help. The diagnosis, there's a power of sin that holds us back. There are attachments that have grabbed hold of us that are hard to let go of. But the good news, the good news, it's not about trying harder and harder and harder. It's about being willing and surrendered and yielded. And this is where we're going to be going.